My name is Luke Brederton, and this is the Listen, Organize, Act podcast, which focuses on the history and contemporary practice of organizing in democratic politics. In this second series, I'm exploring key texts that shaped organizing. Many of them form a kind of unofficial canon that organizers and leaders have turned to again and again over decades to inspire shared action and explain the meaning, purpose, and character of democratic politics. This episode discusses a passage by the ancient Greek historian Thucydides. Now, you may well ask, what has Thucydides got to do with organizing? I remember my first extended training in community organizing. It was held in a nunnery in Richmond, West London. There were a wide variety of folk there, from truck drivers to school teachers and clergy. Early on, we were given a passage by Thucydides to read. It was from his book, The History of the Peloponnesian War. The passage focused on the dialogue between the Athenians and the Melians. I've got to admit, I was kind of stunned. Why on earth were we being asked to read this ancient text in a training on how to do radical democracy in the 21st century? What did this obscure dialogue have to teach a multicultural and multi-faith group about politics and power? And to be honest, I was a bit uncertain as to what everyone would make of it. Well, I can say we learned a lot, and with great intensity, everyone got into debating the relative merits of the Athenian and Melian positions. It turns out that the Melian dialogue from Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War has been used by organisers all over the world to teach about politics and power since at least the 1960s, if not before. Organisers are not alone in turning to this text. It's been a very influential one in thinking about the nature of politics for centuries, informing the thought of some of the seminal figures in the history of Western political thought, such as Machiavelli, Thomas Hobbes, and in the 20th century, the realist school of international relations. But it's not just political philosophy that stands in its shadow. Its insights have been referenced by political leaders down the ages. More recently, it's been turned to by policymakers and scholars trying to make sense of and narrate the growing conflict between China as the emerging superpower and the US the reigning superpower. This is because Thucydides' history tells the story of a war between Athens, the rising power, and Sparta, the established power. Along the way, the history explores how democracy, war, and empire intersect, and the relationship between justice and power, and much else besides. I begin this episode by talking to Jen Adkins, my colleague at Duke, and a scholar of ancient Greek, Roman, and early Christian moral and political philosophy and their modern reception. For many years now, he has taught Thucydides, and how Thucydides has influenced modern political thought. Jed Atkins, it's great to have you on the Listen, Organize, Act podcast. Thank you so much uh, for doing this. Now, I know you've taught Thucydides uh, for a number of years now and, and as a great scholar of these texts and ancient thought, um, I thought you'd be the perfect person to, to talk to, to discuss uh, Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War. So just to kick us off, can you uh, tell us a little bit about who, who was Thucydides? I mean, we know really little about Thucydides himself. Um, 
Actually, scholars estimate that he was born between, we don't even have his birthday, uh, you know, right, you know, the birth year, sometime between 460 and 455 uh, BCE. Uh, so about the time when Pericles is taking the lead of uh, the Athenian democracy, about, you know, 461. And, and so this is during a so-called golden age um, of Athenian democracy. Um, Athens is gaining power abroad. We have this big building project on the Acropolis with, with all the famous buildings like the Parthenon. Um, and it's also a time of growth in classical literature and philosophy. Uh, Socrates, he would have been about a teenager uh, when, right. uh, when Thucydides was born. Uh, and so from what we do know, uh, Thucydides was the son of a wealthy Athenian whose, whose wealth uh, came from gold mines. Um, we know that he was elected general in 424 uh, BCE, and so he actually fought against the Spartans. He, he was fighting in the war about which he was writing, um, and we know that he lived to at least the end of the Peloponnesian War in 404 um, because he um, he mentions uh, the end of the war, so we know he lived uh, through the end of the war. Um, Thucydides was a historian, um, but we also gather from um, uh, his writings that he received a philosophical education as well um, in history of the Peloponnesian. Peloponnesian War is not just a war history, but it's also one of the masterpieces of political theory. Um, so that's about all we really know about Thucydides. There's some ancient um, um, speculation and, and conjectures about his death, etc. But um, but as far as, as evidence, that's that's more or less what we know. Right. And so, how, do we know anything about kind of why and how he came to write the history of the Peloponnesian War? I mean, it's a it's in many ways, it's a new genre. No one's really written histories of this kind before. Um, as far as why he wrote the history of the Peloponnesian War, I think the best evidence is his own words. Um, and um, I, I can go ahead and uh, I can give you a, a great passage. Yeah. Uh, King, he says, well, why am I doing this? Well, those who want to look into the truth of what was done in the past, which given the human condition will recur in the future, either in the same fashion or nearly so, those readers will find this history valuable enough as this was composed to be a lasting possession and not to be heard for a prize at the moment of a contest. So here Thucydides says he hopes to unveil some lasting truths about the human condition uh, so that we can have some insights into the politics of the future. Um, and, and so that's his ambition. And that's why he's he's writing the history. That's why he's composing the speeches the way he does. Uh, he wants his work to be, as he says, a katema a possession for all time. Uh, you know, so imagine Luke setting out to write a book uh, that people are always going to want to read and always going to want to want to want to think about. Well, uh, you know, I mean, you'd be thought to be arrogant and uh, and, and probably would be so paralyzed uh, by the enormity of it. We'd never, you know, you never get anything written. Uh, but that's what Thucydides set out to do. Um, and, and surprisingly, he succeeded. Uh, I mean, we're still talking about this uh, today. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So can you give kind of a, a, a brief kind of overview? I mean, it's a huge book, but, and, and it's extraordinary, he, A, that he wrote this at this length, and B, that it survived. We've got a pretty much intact manuscript, you know, through the ages. But can you just give us a summary of the kind of core plot arc, as it were, that he he sets out? And obviously it tracks the, the history of the war, and it's fascinating to hear that it was kind of he was writing it as it was happening so it is in a sense reportage but but it is also a highly structured text that's making this kind of commentary on the human condition just give us a sense of the overview yeah that's right well uh so the, i mean the history chases uh it 
traces the war, uh, the history of the war from its beginning in 431, uh, all the way down actually to 410. He doesn't actually make it to the end in 404. Um, and as you say, there's a lot there. It's a massive work and, and there's different ways to make your own plot sort of through the text. Um, I'm a political theorist, so I, I sort of make my way through the text, uh, following plots that are, that, that, that raise sort of the kind of questions that political theorists ask, the kind of question, the big questions about politics. And so I'll just throw out a few of those as we sort of make our way uh, really briefly through uh, the sort of thorough line of the work. Uh, so book one begins by examining the causes of war. Uh, from the growth of Athenian Empire uh, to the influence of the general Pericles. Uh, it also puts on the table an issue that's going to be pursued throughout the work, uh, the characteristic elements of democratic Athens uh, and whether uh, democracy is sustainable and suitable as a political form, um, as it's, you know, acts uh, in, in, in trying to rule its empire. Uh, book two brings us to the opening years of the war. Uh, this is where we're confronted with that really famous description of the plague uh, that ravaged Athens from 430 to 429, and it killed 25% of the population. Uh, and and uh, and so which if you had to extrapolate that to a country the size of the United States, that'd be like 80 million people uh, 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 perishing in the plague. Um, so, so the magnitude is just, um, is just disastrous and, and immense. Uh, and it also includes, uh, Pericles' famous funeral oration, uh, that he gives over the dead, uh, which, which is just a wonderful piece of democratic rhetoric, uh, that portrays, uh, Athenian values and institutions at their best. Um, we also see there uh, a leadership vacuum, uh, that, that, that emerges when Pericles dies, uh, which is going to be part of the story moving forward. Uh, book three includes, uh, this very famous, uh, Middleanian debate, uh, in which Athens has to decide how to respond when this non-tributary city revolts. Uh, and this debate raises questions of, about democratic decision making. Um, we also see in book three, uh, a very famous account of civil strife, uh, uh, of, of civil war. Um, and how empire relates to civil war. There's a connection between external and, and internal. Uh, that's there in book three. Uh, book four sees the making and breaking of peace. And in book five, the war comes back and we have that famous Melian dialogue, uh, which is so important for the later realist tradition. And we'll come back to that later, I suspect. Uh, and then book six features the disastrous Sicilian expedition in which several of the episodes and, and themes foreshadowed earlier in the narrative really received their culmination in, Ath in Athens's defeat. Um, things such as the fickleness of hope and the problem of imperial overexpansion. And then book seven and eight trace a lot more events of historical importance. But I think if you really want to focus on the main political themes and passages, those would be the ones that I just mentioned. All right. That is fantastic. And, and in a sense, kind of he's tracking... Um, this history. It, I want to get on to thinking about him as a, a, a political thinker, and that's going to be our kind of primary focus. But he's also obviously seen as one of the first historians, and and uh, along with Herodotus and a, and a few others. Why history? Why is history for him the kind of medium? I mean, we've got obviously Socrates coming along, and then later Plato and Aristotle. And at his time, there's already a, a slew of pre-Socratic thinkers who are doing quite speculative thought about what is the good life and how should you organize life together. Why does he turn to history in this particular genre? Do you think? Well, I think I think you know, for him, history is something that. Um, that unveils uh, human nature, I think, in a really uh, powerful way. And, and, you know, it really comes down to the fact that I think uh, he does see, uh, you know, uh, unveiled in action, unveiled in, uh, in, in this great war, um, great truths. 
um, about human nature in a really poignant way. Um, so I think for him, that's why he wants to focus on on history rather than on uh, you know some kind of more theoretical speculation. Right. That's really helpful. And and can you say something a little bit about that? Then how what, how would you view him as a political theorist and perhaps contrast him? with a more familiar figure like Plato, you know, if we contrast those as political thinkers, how would you, in a kind of compare and contrast, how would you see the differences? Well, you know, it's really interesting because I actually think you can make a case that there's quite a lot of overlap uh, oh, between right. the themes uh, treated by Thucydides and Plato. Um, you know, questions like, is there some transcendental standard for justice or is justice simply the right of the stronger or the will to power? Um, the problem of, of civic conflict um, and faction, uh, the limits of democracy, uh, themes like honor and glory, uh, war. Uh, uh, but I mean, there's differences too, and, and emphases too that are, uh, that are, that are different. And, and so Thucydides, he's, he raises questions about war and empire, uh, much more extensively than Plato does. Uh, and he's also going to ignore the question of political form uh, and office, which is so important, uh, for, 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 for Plato. His work, The Republic, is, the title in, in Greek is Politeia, uh, the Constitution. Uh, hey, Politeia, the, the Constitution. So for Plato, he's thinking about constitutional and political forms. Uh, for Thucydides, uh, uh, that, that's very much downplayed. But I think the biggest difference between the two um, involves their approach to the question at hand. Uh, Plato generally, uh, when it comes to politics, Plato generally begins from a top-down approach. Um, he's going to begin with a conception of the ideal regime. Um, and from there, he's going to illuminate human nature um, in its limits. Um, and he's going to say, well, now what are the political possibilities? On the other hand, Thucydides does not concern himself with ideals. And I think this is why history also interests him. Uh, but he's really concerned with human nature as it's displayed in historical uh, action. So that's helpful. So we, we sometimes it's drawn a contrast between them as, as one is the idealist and um, how do we come up with first principles and then apply them to historical realities. But historical reality is always kind of secondary in that we have obviously the image for Plato of the philosopher king who contemplates ideals and then can is the best fitted to rule because they can then apply them to the world of flux and change. And that's very different from Thucydides, who's how do we derive from the world of history, of conflict, of change, deep insights about the human condition. And actually, this gives rise in a sense that he's often seen as the far, found, kind of founding figure of realism as a political school. So in this contrast between idealism and realism. So can you, can you say a little bit about how, how we kind of define realism uh, as an approach and, and say something about its development in the history of political thought? Well, realism is a pretty broad term mm -hmm. uh, that gets used in a couple of different senses. Uh, so most generally in political theory, uh, it might be used to contrast um, a type of opposition to something, an opposition to the type of ideal theory that, that I just talked about uh, with, with Plato. Um, ideal theorists you know, kind of argue that we need to aim for, for just ideals um, and then concern ourselves for the search for perfectly just and rational institutions. Um, and then we might do our best to approximate them uh, in political society given constraints. And realists, though, they want to say no to all that. Uh, they want to say the search for, for just institutions itself is problematic and uh, if, if we're considering a perfectly just and rational order. And so what we should do is abandon idealism and focus our attention on actual political behavior, actual actions, actual institutions. So that's a general sense of, of, of sort of realism. Uh, you're not, it's against sort of idealism. Uh, but there's a more specific way in which realism is used in international relations. Um, uh, and, and, and 
uh, Hans Morgenthal, who is a, a 20th century, uh, a very important sort of realist theorist, the father puts it this way. He says, international politics, like all politics, is a struggle for power. Uh, so in this sense, uh, international relations is, if you're a realist, it's characterized by the subordination of justice and morality to power re- relations. Uh, fear and security are the fundamental motivating factors. Um, uh, you know, and, there, and there's different ways in which you, you know, they, they cash, different theorists cash those out. Uh, international relations is an anarchic system. Um, and, and principles that explain democratic politics cannot explain a state's behavior in an international realm. Um, so, so that's the way it gets used um, in, um, in, in international relations. Um, you focus on your particular national interests of the state and you can tr- construe those in material ways in terms of security or power. So there's this really interesting dynamic in in the history where the kind of account of realism Thucydides gives, and as you said there, that he's got the sense of it's almost a kind of political psychology. We as collectives, in this case Athens, act out of a kind of fear and a desire for security, but this kind of desire for self-preservation quickly morphs in, at least as I read it, into a kind of desire for glory or honor, as well as a kind of hunger for profit and gain. And then in this process, in this move from this acting out of fear and a, and a desire for security, and then in this move then always to ex- the expansive nature of that, we, we, we kind of endlessly want more and more resources to secure ourselves and to protect our sense of honor and status. So that what begins as self-preservation ends up almost inevitably in imperialism. And for Thucydides, there seems a kind of universal law, no community or state with sufficient power uh, in, in the name of its own security is going to resist the impulse to kind of control or conquer its weaker neighbours. And he has kind of various discussions of, of that dynamic. So it's the only way to thwart this dynamic. He, I mean, he, in many ways, he's not being prescriptive, not saying this is the right way to go. He's just being descriptive. Like this is just the kind of political psychology all polities are subject to is the only way to thwart this is through the kind of exercise of counter power and and not through appeal to abstract principles but you've got to you've got to pay attention to really to what's really going on do you think then that in his account justice is just based on a balance of power um does he does he say in a kind of hard-nosed way might makes right or or do you think there's a tension for him between the 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 need to do what's right um but also the need to pay attention to do what's necessary given the realities of the world we live in yeah well i think thucydides is complex and i think the work is complex and i think it's more complex uh than than the the general realist sort of reading um uh you know allows so if i mean if we were like later later realists um kind of very key realist of, of a figure like machiavelli and then uh, after Machiavelli, Thomas Hobbes, both of whom I, mean, I think Hobbes uh, did the first English translation of uh, Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, um, both clearly influenced by Thucydides. Um, in, in what, this will be horribly reductive, so correct me if I'm wrong. But, it, but one way of reading the kind of difference between, between the three is that Machiavelli is a kind of, has a moral scepticism um, and, and really does have a kind of might makes right type of view. Hobbes has a kind of amoral pragmatism. You just, if you're going to survive, you've just got to act to, to ensure your survival. Whereas it seems to me Thucydides 
has a very different view. He, he does think we live in a moral universe. There are moral goods and that are real. We ignore moral questions at our peril. But there are also very real asymmetries of power, real questions of self-interest, uh, and, and how do you secure your survival as a moral community, as a political community, it's also a moral community, and that you can't avoid in politics. And so there's always this kind of tensional negotiation between real moral commitments and the need to act morally in the world and consequences if you don't. And on the other hand, the kind of political realities of some people are stronger than others, and you've got to secure your kind of future for your for your polity How, do you do you, do you recognize that those kinds of contrasts um yeah i think that's uh i think that's fair i mean you know the, you're right hobbes was uh he translated um thucydides and so was very um very interested in and in, in influenced by thucydides history and um and um uh, but of course, there are differences. I think, you know, and one actually has to do with the role of glory, uh, which with Thucydides gives a higher value in human motivations for war. And, and Hobbes is, you know, is very much concerned with, um, with the desire to maintain and preserve peace, uh, actually, in his theory of war, as, as he's, uh, concerned about more generally in his political theory. It's about, um, it's about uh, achieving security and peace. Uh, so, you know, so there's going to be a contrast a little bit with respect to, um, uh, respect to human motivation. And, and morality and constraint, perhaps uh, between uh, between the two. Um, and Machiavelli's, of course, fascinating. He's um, uh, you know he's a realist in this classical sense that the, the first sense that I mentioned, where where he's like like Thucydides. He says, "I'm not. Don't worry about these imagined republics and principalities that never existed. Like, let's not uh, you know per, uh, mess with um, with Plato." Yeah. He's kind of anti-utopian thinker. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, you know, and so, so certainly Machiavelli is a realist in that sense. Um, and then Machiavelli, you know, there's a big debate over Machiavelli scholars. Is Machiavelli really Machiavellian? Uh, <laughs> you know, in other words, is he a teacher of evil? And some scholars say that he's a teacher of evil and uh, the ends justify the means. And he does say that in the prince almost explicitly, the ends justify the means. Uh, but then in his other work, the discourses, he's much more concerned with, um, uh, you know, almost sort of a Republican sort of understanding of, of liberty and a type of morality that, that is rooted in a notion of freedom. So, uh, you know, so Machiavelli himself is quite complex. So it's hard to make a, a really clear sort of contrast between him and, uh, and Thucydides. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you think in a sense there's a kind of tragic quality to Thucydides' realism that, that, you know, in a sense, part of his commentary on the human condition is that we can fight for, in the first instance to survive and escape oppression and and seem to ourselves and to others to be acting for good reason and for for kind of moral principle but then in turn we ourselves become the oppressors and end up destroying our own moral community as we what began as a, as a moral crusade ends up actually you know creating fields of blood and that that's a familiar story we can think about the russian revolution we can think about um the chinese revolution under mao and and, and all sorts of stories along these lines the fight for justice can end uh in in a, in a very sorry uh, uh end to the to the story what what do you make of that kind of tragic reading of thucydides well i think i think i think there is a a tragic reading that is that is um definitely um definitely there i think um you know i think one way to think about um athens is um is that they are done in actually by their own allegiance to power and their desire to expand it um you know early in the war uh 
Pericles tells Athens, whatever you do, don't try to expand um, your empire. And uh, in, in this very last episode that I mentioned, uh, uh, as far as the political significance, the Sicilian expedition, it ends in an army almost completely wiped out, their generals executed. Well, that was, that was a, um, a, uh, an operation of expansion. They're trying to expand the empire. Um, and I also think there's a deep correspondence uh, between the desire for power and status abroad and then what happens back at home. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, one of the themes that, that is really powerful in book three, where, where Thucydides talks about the treatment of civil war. Um, and I think this is a really good example. He says, war is a violent teacher. Um, it gives people impulses that are just about as bad as their situation. Uh, and, and the war between Athens and Sparta actually leads to civil war um, at home. Uh, citizens become increasingly factionalized. They, they seek vengeance against one another, uh, no matter the cost. Uh, Fascinating on this passage, it's, you should look it up. It's 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 a great passage. It's and very relevant, I think, in some ways in thinking about contemporary politics. Uh, my students find it to resonate very clearly. Uh, so it would be Book Three, uh, sections eighty-two to to eighty-four, um, and and he says, you know, um, what what happens is party allegiance um, exceeds all other forms of allegiance, whether it's family ties, whether it's religion. Uh, the common moral vocabulary that binds citizens together in a shared community that breaks down. Uh, political rhetoric becomes increasingly a contest over power, over who can best describe or re-describe their opponent uh, in a moral light that benefits them, that sticks. Uh, you know, so prudence is called cowardice. Uh, Ill-considered rashness is called, man, uh, you know, sort of loyal manliness. Um, the desire for victory and vengeance over your opponents. Um, uh, people who are determined first to destroy without a Trace the laws that govern the communities, uh, just so you can get revenge. So the rule of law goes out, um, and so I think in our polarized society, like there's really obvious lessons uh, that, that we can draw from this sort of correspondence, uh, almost a tragic correspondence to the desire to roll back back onto us. Uh, when when you know when when power when politics dominates your other allegiances uh, and forms, and when politics is seen in terms of power. And power is seen in terms of dominating your opponents or being dominated. Uh, then peaceful coexistence, compromise, a commitment to the common good, um, that all just becomes impossible. Um, and indeed, in such a situation, it leads to a type of hopelessness, um, actually, and a, and a perpetuation of, of deep cynicism, uh, where we just completely lose hope uh, in the common good. No, I think that's a one. I think it's a very powerful point, and the I think there is at the heart of the text this commitment to a kind of politics of the common good, and in this very rich exploration between the relation between democracy, empire, and war, Thucydides is in, is in, is in many ways tracking the ways in which this move to a kind of imperial aggrandizement and the stepping out of a sense of cupidity and pride and search for honor beyond simple kind of security, the, the Athenians actually then begin importing this, um, treating every political relations as simply a question of power and divorcing it from any moral commitment or commitment to a shared good. That then comes, that washes back into the democracy and collapses the democracy because it becomes a war of each against all. Everyone just starts, and this factionalism and this treating every interaction as a, as a kind of winning by any means necessary, and, and therefore the democracy itself collapses, and that's kind of, in a sense, the tragic arc of of, of the history. It's a, and I think there's it's a very interesting dynamic. One can read it as a, a kind of critique of imperialism, 
Um, and and it, it's a it's a common strand, often not given much airtime in contemporary thought, but it's a common strand of I might say conservative critiques of imperialism. I'm thinking here of someone like Edmund Burke and William Wilberforce and Hannah Moore of the Clapham sect. They were similarly in their critiques of slavery, their critiques of the British Empire, that it corrupts the moral community at home through this expansive and the delusions and then the reduction of everything to purely instrumental and power-based reasons. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating, uh, fascinating dynamic. I want to, I want to turn now to look specifically at the Melian dialogue in, in book five. Can you just give us a, a little summary of, of the Melian dialogue and where it sits in the history that Thucydides is narrating? Uh, Milos, it's this tiny island. Um, this island has been, it's been neutral, uh, but it's a Spartan colony. Um, and they did not want to be subject to, to Sparta. And uh, they, they try to stay at peace sort of with both sides. Uh, but Thucydides says the Athenians pressed them uh, into open conflict by wasting, laying waste to their land. Uh, and so the Athenian generals, they move into Melian territory uh, with their forces. They send ambassadors to negotiate. Uh, the Melians refuse uh, to bring these ambassadors before the common people. Uh, and, and instead, they order them to deliver their message behind closed doors uh, to just a few officials and, and leading uh, citizens. Um, you know, which is, um, which is a really interesting point, actually. Um, and, it, and it's, uh, different from some of the other dialogues, such as the Mytilenean debate, which takes place in an assembly, uh, in Athens out in the open. Uh, you know, and so, so here it's just behind closed doors. And, and so what we find here is, uh, that, that really there's no rhetoric. Uh, people are not making, the Athenians are not making their arguments in terms of justice like they will earlier. Uh, there's no attempt, Pericles earlier in the the work tries to justify um, you know Athens uh, empire in terms of, of justice in terms of their their role uh, in the war against Persia uh, there's none of that here um, you know uh, the Athenians say hey look we're not going to make a long speech uh, that no one would believe we'll find moral arguments um, you know the, and there's this then it's followed by this famous quote the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must uh, this quote that's so important for for realism that we were talking about earlier in international um, relations. Um, and, and so, um, so the, um, yeah, I mean, the Melians, they try to argue their case for neutrality. Uh, they keep trying to hold out hope. Uh, they, they're going to hope in gods and the Spartans to save them. Um, but Athens just gets down to, to brass tacks and they say, we're stronger than you. Um, and, um, and, and, uh, surrender to us or we'll destroy you. Um, the Melians, they don't surrender. They hot, they hold out, um, hope. They, they try to resist. Um, Athens lays a siege. Uh, Athens wins. They kill all the males in the city and they sell all the women and children into slavery. Yeah, it's it's pretty brutal ending. It's kind of <laughs> it's a all done in like a line <laughs> at the end. So, so, so some read this dialogue as a morality tale in which the Melians are good, principled, uh, innocent victims destroyed by the kind of bad, uh, concupiscent, colonizing Athenians. I, I think in the light of the discussion we've just been having and Thucydides' kind of tragic moral realism puts it in a very different frame of reference. And in some, I, I would read the Melians as, as immoral. Um, they're actually the immoral ones in this dialogue because instead of recognizing the reality of the situation, they choose this foolish optimism that generates their destruction 
And the contrast seems to be here in, in the dialogue between the kind of practical, although amoral realism of the Athenians, who are constantly trying to get the Melians to see what's in their best self-interest. And, and that's contrasted with the kind of emotive, prideful, abstract moralizing of the Melians that generates a disaster that they bring on themselves. Do you think this is a kind of fair reading of, of what Thucydides is doing here? Well, I think that, you know, I think it's a, it's a little... Uh, more complex, uh, you know. Certainly, I agree uh, than than simply, uh, you know, sort of the the bad uh, Athenians and the um, you know the 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 poor Melians at their uh, sort of mercy. Um, I, I think you know one thing. It's again, I said this is a piece of literature, uh, and so it's important to read uh, episodes in light of previous episodes. And and one thing is that you'll know going back to the Middle-Elean debate that I mentioned before. Uh, the Middle-Elean debate actually is a uh, uh, maybe to get get. A bit more detail on that. It's it's um, Athens needs to d- figure out what they need to do about um, a um, you know a- another colony that uh, that rebels, and so they debate about how they're to treat them. And uh, and one of the people that is uh, in the debate, there's a, a character named Diodotus, and um, and, he, and we don't know much about him otherwise, but he argues in favor of sparing the people as a whole uh, by just punishing the leading citizens, the oligarchs of Madalini. Um, and, and he says, we need to do that precisely to try to divide the city uh, into the democratic many against the oligarchic leaders, uh, make the common people your friends in other cities and oppose the elite. Um, and, and that way you keep the entire city from coming together. That's sort of the logic. That's the, the strategy. Uh, so, so the oligarchs, uh, uh, know the oligarchs at Melos, uh, they know that they have everything to lose if they surrender. Uh, certainly their power, certainly their status, uh, maybe even their lives. Uh, so it's in their, in their own best interests to make sure that Athens wages war against the entire city and not just them. Uh, this is their best chance to survive. Uh, maybe, just maybe, the Spartans will help them. Maybe the gods will save them. Uh, you know, they say, as long as we hold out, we still have hope. But, of course, I think one of the interesting questions you raise is, is, is who is we? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and, and we here is, is, I think, in the first instance, the elite. Uh, you know, battle hasn't started yet. It's possible for the people of Milos uh, to just find other leaders. And, and actually Athens would be very happy to have democratic leaders, uh, you know, who would, um, you know, who would be uh, friendly to them. Um, so I think, so I think part of the story here is actually the self-interest um, of, of uh, the, the, the leaders of, of um, you know, of Milos. Right. So there's a kind of hypocrisy here that the posing of the principled moral claim and the appeals to justice and the appeals to the gods, actually what we've got is a bunch of elites uh, masking naked self-interest. They, as you say, it's behind closed doors. They don't consult their people. They're not actually representing the interests of their community. They're representing their own interest. And I think that's a, it's one of the dynamics that often organizing picks up on that the self-proclaimed leaders aren't actually representing real people. They're, they're self-proclaimed leaders who are then pursuing in the name of kind of masking or cloaking in the name of kind of moral principles, uh, what is actually just quite a narrow self-interest, and that yeah, it's an it's an interesting dynamic, and and kind of um, just expanding on that. I mean, despite being prompted to do so, the the, the Athenian by the Athenians, the, the Melians refuse 
seemingly in the text reflect on the reality of their situation. Perhaps on your account, they they are quite aware of the reality of their situation, but they reflect on the they deny the kind of broader implications for the for the city as a whole, and and in many ways they bring avoidable disaster upon themselves. And we can think of a kind of contemporary example. You know, to die of plague is misfortune and deserves empathy, but to die of plague because you refuse to wear a mask or be vaccinated is blameworthy, uh, and such. Foolish behaviour is, in many ways, at heart, a failure to follow the edicts of the Delphic Oracle to know thyself. You're not having a proper self-evaluation of your situation. Can you just kind of comment on a kind of long tradition of this kind of thinking in ancient Greek and and Roman thought that to to suffer as a result of misfortune is blameless, but to suffer as a result of one's own actions is shameful and blameworthy, even if one is claiming to be acting acting in the name of an ideal or, or moral principle. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think, I mean, the first thing I'd say is, you know, I mean, there is this distinction between uh, certainly what is, um, you know, what is what is morally blameworthy, and, and that's something that we have responsibility for. Um, of course, one thing that's fascinating, and, and this is the stuff of ancient tragedy, is that there's um, uh, where, where you have uh, reversals of fortune uh, that are brought on you, um, and and sometimes it's it, it's it's because of your responsibility, but also sometimes it's because of things that you uh, that, that you're not morally culpable for, uh, but they're characteristics that are that are that, that are um, you know that are ingrained in you, um, and um, and and so there's a really interesting sort of thin line between um, let's say um, uh, you know your actions um, and things that are up to you. Um, that you're culpable for, um, and actually, um, um, uh, you know, uh, luck and contingency. Um, and I think actually through Cities' example here uh, that we're talking about with with with, with the Melians, um, um, actually even points to something deeper. Actually, uh, when you think about um, human nature and what's hardwired into human nature, uh, and 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 it's and it's something that we're both culpable for, but also something that is just. Uh, a characteristic tendency uh, uh, that happens to all of us, you know, when we when we think, oh, well, this can't happen to me, uh, uh, and it could be, you know, the example of, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, you you mentioned sort of the the COVID example, uh, you know, we, we we tend to overestimate our own abilities, our own uh, uh, immortality. So Thucydides got this rich exploration relationship between democracy, war. We'll, we'll come on to whether he's a critic or friend of democracy. But but central in this is this theme of hope. And the, the Melians put their hope in where either the gods or the Spartans, their kind of ally turning up and, and helping. And as you say, there's this kind of overestimation. Can you can you give us a sense? Because it's quite an alien idea in ancient Greek thought. We, we who stand on the other side of a kind of Christian idea of hope, What's the ancient Greek understanding of hope, and and how does it contrast with a Christian understanding? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean that's right. I mean, uh, for Christians, hope is you know it's one of the four theological virtues: faith, hope, and charity. Um, and uh, and for the Greeks, uh, it was either ambiguous or a vice. But but th- they understand hope in a very sort of particular way. Um, uh, you know, Thucydides understands hope in terms of. Uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's an overestimation um, of your own, um, abilities. Um, it's, it's sort of a groundless type of, um, of optimism. But I, I want to, want to turn now to think about, because there is this really interesting relationship between hope and democracy. Because in the face of intractable evil, in the face of something like white supremacy, in the face of the kind of depredations of capitalism and, uh, cl- something like climate change, should we have hope? Should we, 
act with others to to make the world better. Or it, 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 one way of reading history is just one damn thing after another, and you're never going to win the the people with more power. Or it is just might makes right. And there are plenty of theorists, Nietzsche and others, who would suggest that's that's the kind of the way one should understand it. But obviously, democracy is premised on this idea of hope that change can happen, and you can, despite the reality. Can you give us some sense of, um, you know, what are some un- uh, this relationship between democracy and hope, and some understandings of the relationship between democracy and hope in kind of contemporary thought, in contrast to this kind of naive optimism view? Um, I mean, there's 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 a number of uh, thinkers on which you can draw that are quite interesting. I'll, uh, I'll go with Cornell West. Uh, in a nice little essay, uh, The Moral Obligations of Living in a Democratic Society, uh, in a book called The Good Citizen, uh, 1999, I think it was. Uh, but, but he, he also makes this, this nice distinction between hope and optimism. He says, hope has nothing to do with optimism. Um, I'm in no way optimistic about America, uh, nor am I optimistic about the plight of the human species on the globe. Um, there's simply not enough evidence to infer that things are going to get better. Uh, that has been a perpetual state and condition of not simply black people in America, but of all self-conscious human beings who are sensitive to the forms of evil around them. We can be prisoners of hope, even as we call optimism into question. To be part of the democratic tradition is to be a prisoner of hope. You cannot be a prisoner of hope without engaging in a form of struggle in the present moment that keeps the best of the past alive. To struggle, to engage in struggle means that one is always willing to acknowledge that there is no triumph around the corner, but you persist uh, because you believe that it is right and just um, and moral. So again, both of these accounts, I believe that hope needs to be related to history. Um, uh, somebody that is uh, engaged in the democratic process of, of working uh, together to bring about uh, change, uh, looks backward uh, to, to the grounds of history and to, to what's best in, in the tradition in history, but then pivots and focuses on the struggle in the present uh, with a view to a better future. All right. Fantastic. Wonderful. That's a, a wonderful note uh, and, and the future-orientated hope for present struggles and how that is deeply connected to what it means to engage in democratic politics, I think is a great note to end on. So, Jed, thank you so much. It's a rich conversation and really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. discuss something of the history and reception of the Athenian Melian dialogue and its place in political philosophy with my colleague Jed Atkins, I turn now to reflect on its use in community organising and what can be learned from it today for grassroots democratic politics. I do so with Anna N, senior organiser with the Industrial Areas Foundation working in California and Nevada. Welcome to the Listen, Organise, Act podcast. Great to have you on the series. Um, before we dive into the Melian and Athenian dialogue, can you tell me something about yourself, how you got started in organising and what your current role is? Sure. Um, so I started organising uh, 20 years ago in 2002, um, but I grew up working class Baptist in Portland, Oregon. Um my uh, parents both, well, my dad's family 
was a large Chinese family that immigrated to the San Francisco Bay Area. And my mom's family was poor white folks in rural Ohio. And they came out to California for better work opportunities. So my parents met at San Jose State and they moved up to Portland to go to seminary. And I grew up there and then moved to California for a volunteer corps opportunity after college and uh, was in the nonprofit world, um, got pretty disillusioned with the nonprofit world. And that's kind of how I found organizing. Right. Right. So where was that? Was that in LA area or somewhere else where you, where you got kind of involved? What was the no, kind of story I, of your introduction? <laughs> I was in the Central Valley of California and um, was working with a do-gooder organization that was trying to work with a community in a neighborhood where the, a hospital was being built, I think. It was a long time ago. And we were daydreaming about what was going to happen to this community. And we didn't actually have any power to do anything about it. So I was in my early 20s and I'm running around with easel pads and coming up with vision statements. And then the city ultimately did what it was going to do anyway. And our organization was just kind of rubber stamping the fact that they had talked to the community and it made me really angry and I just felt kind of disempowered and thought, I'm going to go do something honest with my life and go back to school or start a small business. Uh, my dad was a small business owner. And uh, that was how I kind of ran into the Industrial Areas Foundation and thought, well, these are some really interesting people. Um, I'm going to join up with them. So I started organizing in L.A. in 2002. And then worked in the San Francisco Bay Area for a while, worked on the border in Texas, and I'm now in Nevada. Uh, so I'm the, the lead organizer with Nevadans for the Common Good. And I also supervise a sponsoring committee in the San Jose area. And I'm on the management team with the uh, West-Southwest region. You've used the Melian-Athenian dialogue in, in training um, for many, many years. And just can you say a little bit about like, why do you think the Melian dialogue is used in training? Um, what what kind of work does it do in organizing? Well, so the Malian Dialogue um, is a story about a failed negotiation. So if we are about the work of training regular people how to effectively operate in politics, we need to know how to negotiate. And most of us have experienced... Um, how that doesn't work, how we've lost, how we've not known how to negotiate, we've not known how to deal with power. And so to utilize a story um, where things have broken down, uh, we've found that to be a helpful template for understanding our own um, inability to, to, to operate. And then how, what do we need to do? How do we need to change in order to be better at negotiation, better at power? better at understanding the political atmosphere around us. Can you say a little bit about why why it's good to do it early and then also how you introduce it or set it up? Like how someone walks in a room, like what are they, how do you kind of frame it to people and, and why do you put it kind of early on? Well, there's two parts to the the teaching. So the first part is an, is, um, a, an exercise that we do um, where we ask people to actually uh, use the dialogue to negotiate with each other. So that's the first part. 
The second part is then unpacking what the dialogue actually says after people have interpreted what they think that it says in an exercise, a kind of role play. And so the actual dialogue, what is interesting, you have the Athenians and you have the Malians. The Athenians are the more powerful party, obviously, and they are coming to the Malians, uh, to their island, to say, all right, we need, uh, we need you to uh, join with us. We, you know, we need you to become our colony as opposed to being Sparta's colony. What are your conditions or what do you want? We, you know, it's, it's obvious. I mean, they come with armed forces. They can obliterate them. That's not a question. They absolutely can, but they're not. They're, I mean, they're not asking them to go to Belarus. They're not asking them to go to a hostile territory to negotiate. They are coming to them. And so by nature of arriving, and I mean, it's a, it's a negotiating table has been set by the more powerful party. And the Malians miss this point. They see power and they stereotype it and they say, you are going to kill us. You are going to put us into slavery. The Athenians do not bring that up. The Athenians don't introduce that. The Athenians are not actually trying to kill them or enslave them because it, they don't really need to waste the resources doing that. So the Malians behave the way that we often do when we encounter power. We stereotype, we assume, um, we think we know, um, you know, powerful people and powerful institutions, they just want to mess us up. They just want to, they're not willing to negotiate. And we don't understand that if you are at the negotiating table, you have some measure of power. Even if the, the folks across from you have more power, they need you for some reason. You have something to 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 offer, and so that's sort of the 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 setting for, um, you know this this dial this this negotiation that ultimately falls apart because the Malians rely on principles. They rely on they they say we want to remain neutral. We don't you know and if and and the Athenians say no, you can't be neutral. If you not notice the geopolitical reality around you, that's not an option. But, you know, if you just pay us a tribute, you pay us some taxes, we'll leave you alone. But you got to tell us what you want. We got to have some some conditions here. And they say no. They just keep saying no. So in this, it's, it's you know, later the Athenians do come in and brutalize them. And that's later. And the, the Athenians overreach and they lose the war as a result. But in this moment... The Athenians are behaving in a way that we think is exemplary, is something to be learned from. They are not the good guys, but they are behave. They're exercising their power um, in a way that we should learn from. The Malians are behaving the way a lot of times our people behave, who are overly principled, who um, make assumptions about power, and so it is helpful for people to see themselves reflected in another story um, to be able to kind of unpack. Why is it that we do that? Why is it that we assume that just because someone has power, they're bad, they want to, you know, 
obliterate us um, and that we don't have the capacity to negotiate. Yeah. So in terms of the actual format of the session, like what is what does the room look like? How do you, how does, how does that work? Well, so the, the beginning when we, when we open it, um, you know, we give people an opportunity to kind of interpret how they have read the text through their own lens. Um, cause it's the first thing we, well, we do introductions and we do rounds, but then we just jump into this and, assign some people to be Athenians and some people to be Malians and then go see what you can do. And the, the goal is, can, can you negotiate? Can you arrive at a deal? The actual Athenians and the actual Malians in the story do not arrive at a deal. They end up going to war. That is not, you know, we are not trying to go to war. That's why we are engaged in politics War happens when politics falls apart. So can you, do you have the imagination to retrieve this story, change this story, turn it into something that is, you know, uh, has better results? And um, and so through, you know, just an exercise of people, whoever, in, every time we do it, it's a different group of folks. And so people engage differently. They bring their own experience. Like I said, I was a bureaucrat. So I think I actually literally brought pieces of paper into the, I mean, I was having people sign things, you know, um, but it's a, it's a way, the reason that we do it, it's, it's also a way to bring people. I mean, so when we do training, we have, we have folks from a variety of different experiences. Um, if it's national training, it's from all over the country. Um, even, I mean, I just did a train, we didn't do the Malian dialogue, but I just did a training here in Las Vegas this weekend. And we have people who, you know, are from different religious groups, different economic groups, different, I mean, different parts of the city. And so it's a, it's a way to open with a shared experience of exploring how we understand power, um, and doing something interactive with each other to kind of bust through our own stereotypes and to kind of see a little bit more clearly, um, what do we bring to the table? What do I, how do I, you know, how do I approach power? What is my way of operating in the world? Um, so that's, that's why we started that way. Right. Uh, Cause I think that it, that, that point about the shared experience is very important and it does then, it's certainly my experience, it, it becomes a kind of shared reference point and the story becomes, I mean, across, you know, you might have Muslims, Christians, Hindus, uh, black, white, different people literally from socioeconomic backgrounds in the room. But through going through this shared experience, we then all have this shared narrative and point of reference that runs through the rest of the training that can be, and, and having all gone through that experience, we can then discuss it and re-reference it uh, at, at, at other points. And I think that for me is was in a very interesting, you know, having having it that early, having something that's in one sense outside of all our experience, that, that but then creates the shared experience, is very important for then the group in its own discussions of politics and power and how organising works, running through the rest of the training. And and do you say to say a little bit about because it's often a funny term that comes up that I think people outside of organising get a bit curious. I find I often have to explain. The it almost used pejoratively. Oh, that's such a Melian position. Can you just explain a little bit about what that means? Like how how some something to be called Melian? Why that's a bad thing? Sure. Well, so yes, we do. We kind of use a shorthand. Are you being an Athenian? Um, are you being a Melian? 
Um, and and it is not in reference to the you know historic Athenians and the historic Malians necessarily. It is to how they behave in this particular negotiation in this particular moment. And um, the Athenians, we lift up the Athenians as the way that we want our people to behave, because the Athenians frame the dialogue. They set the terms. They are clear about their interests. They're clear about the Malians' interests. They're clear about the Spartans, their enemies' interest. They understand why they're there and what they want. They are specific. They, you know, ask the Malians to be specific too. They are not appealing to abstractions. They are willing and able to have an adult conversation in the context of war the, you know, the stories in the context of war and say, look, here's, I mean, they're very vulnerable. If you read this, the dialogue, I mean, they're just really clear (laughs) why they don't, we don't want to kill you. And if you don't come on board, we look weak. And so, you know, here's the, here's the situation. Um, They're very clear. They have in the dialogue, there is, they have what they call the safe rule. The safe rule is to stand up to one's equals, to behave with deference towards one's superiors, and to treat one's inferiors with moderation. So you stand up to your equals, you behave with deference to your superiors, and you treat your inferiors with moderation. They are demonstrating how to treat their inferiors with moderation. The millions are their inferiors by far, and they are being moderate. They are not obliterating them. They are saying, you know, you just we just want you to pay taxes. So we are saying we want to behave like that. I should just I just just in because before you get into the medium bit, it I think part of what sticks in the crawl a lot of folk is the idea that that there are such things as superiors and inferiors. And and it's like, well, that's the reaction. It's like, no, no, no. And I think what comes through in the dialogue, and it's it's part of the kind of shift that goes on is realizing it's just a statement of fact one people have got a huge navy and a whole bunch of power or they just have a in you know our contemporary circumstances they have just a lot more money a lot more political power there's a realism about their one side's ability to act over and against another side's ability to act and when we're talking about inferior and superior that's that's what it's not a they're somehow you know, more dignity than these other people. It's no, no, they just have a ton more power to act and there has to be some recognition. And if you have more power, you've got to treat those who have less power with dignity rather than humiliate them. And I think that's a, getting getting clear on that and, and the recognition we do live in a world where some people can act more than others. I've certainly found that in, in training contexts and in organizing. That's often a bitter, bitter pill to swallow, but is crucial to the kind of dialogue what some of the work the dialogue does in in laying that out, but yeah. So just I'm sorry, interview that. But what so what about the Melian? Why, why is it bad to be called a Melian? Well, and I wouldn't say it's bad necessarily. It is just um, it helps diagnose uh, some of the challenges that we face. We we all have a tendency to be Melian sometimes um, to believe that being right is enough, and being right is not enough. You have to be right and have power. <laughs> so, 
And then you have to be willing to admit that maybe you're not 100% right, that maybe you're only 80% right or 50% right or even only 40% right. But if you have enough power, your 40% right can still win. Um, so the Malians, what the Malians do, um, and if you go through and read the dialogue, you, I mean, they just, they can't even really have a conversation um, about anything specific because they, they, they have monologues. They arrive and the Athenians sit down and say, okay, here's, here's the deal. You know, we, let's talk, let's discuss, let's negotiate. And the Malians stand up and give a very passionate speech about justice in the world. And it reminds me of the people who show up at city council meetings and preach for the full three minute, you know, allotment on why, you know, the flag should be flown in a particular, whatever the moral thing that they're preaching. Um, and it, there is nothing specific about it. There is no ask. There is just um, beautiful words. Uh, and, and, and the Malians have very beautiful words about God is on our side. Justice will prevail. Um, and that's pretty much all they do. They just speechify throughout and they, they don't really have anything else. They just, we want freedom. We want freedom. We want freedom. And that's not really a negotiation. That's a statement of a belief system, uh, an ideology uh, principles, but it is not going to get you anywhere other than war, which is what ends up happening. Right. So the, the millions, it's this, they refuse to recognize, not only they don't have a concrete ask, they refuse to recognize their own weak position and think just endless restatements of their principles will somehow, I don't know, win the hearts and minds of the Athenians. And there's no actual engagement with the reality. So that I, I always understood the, the millions is, is just a, a, not, not simply a lack of a power analysis, but a refusal to really wrestle with the reality of one's actual position and the concrete kind of granular nature of that and live 50,000 feet above the air, you know, above the ground in, in some kind of abstract set of nouns that don't actually connect to the real world you're living in and, and having to kind of work out how to act in that world. And that, I think that's a very, I think that is a very kind of common um, sense because people haven't had to, also, people haven't had the experience of having to negotiate with power. So it's a very unfamiliar way um, or, or any training in, in how you engage constructively with power. That, that, that's just, a, just an unfamiliarity. And this seems to be the script that one's given from the TV or news feeds or social media. You endlessly declaim your position and rather than doesn't Well, they're willing to die. They're willing right, right. to die. They're going to die they're going to fall on their sword. And I think our point is you really you really want to fall on your sword? Why not try winning? Like, you know, you got to know what your non-negotiables are, but you don't have to give up everything. Winning is incremental. I think the biggest thing that you got to get over if you're going to engage in politics and in power and and all of that is um a need to follow your ideals or your principles um, in a really, pe people have a tendency to be overly principled. Right. <laughs> 
We don't, we don't want to be immoral though. What's what's the what's the what's no? What's we ha- I mean, we want to have we have principles. We should have principles. We should have morals. But to be overly principled is to take an idea the an idea of justice or an idea of um, what is right in the world, and we don't settle for good enough. We want it to be perfect. We want to bring about the world as it should be now. And if it isn't 100%, we aren't going to be happy. We don't know how to negotiate. So that's, I think, the biggest the biggest thing that the dialogue helps to disrupt in all of us, our tendency to, um, you know, just want to win everything now. And that's not possible. It's kind of making it's the, that tendency to, to make the best the enemy of the good. Unless we can get the, you know, the the full form blown version of the principle or the idea, we're not willing to compromise, and therefore um, we won't actually kind of generate a meaningful outcome. We're we're not kind of grounded in the realities of the situation. It's more about this. No, we're gonna, you know, we've got to. It's almost apocalyptic. You know, we've got to have the kingdom come, uh, and anything less than the kingdom come is not really going to satisfy. So, for example. In um, the immigration fights uh, in California in the early 2000s, the first time, so policy changed. And if you were undocumented, you could, there was a point in time where you could no longer get a driver's license. And then that spread across the country. And in the early 2000s, um, a lot of immigrant rights folks, and we were part of that, really fought to allow undocumented people to be able to get a driver's license. Because they are a huge part of the economy. It was an economic stress. It was, it was, you know, try working and living in Los Angeles without a driver's license. It's, it's impossible. So there were many, many fights uh, about this. And one of the um, um, negotiating, the pieces around which we folks were negotiating was whether or not the license should have uh, a special mark what eventually became, you know, the real ID, but, you know, some kind of mark that would say, all right, this person can drive, but they can't board a plane. They can't, you know, whatever it is. And um, do we, I mean, do we want marks on ID? No, that's, you know, that's human rights says that's not the best policy, but it was something. And if you asked people who themselves were undocumented, trying to get to work, trying to get their kids to school, by and large, they were willing to concede that. You know, to have a piece of ID that is legitimate, that says you are who you say you are, that is issued by the state and country in which you live, that's important because you can get arrested if you don't have it. You, I mean, it, so they, by and large, were okay with it. The immigrant rights activists, on the other hand, based on principle, were not. And part of the reason why those early fights to get driver's licenses for for undocumented people failed was because of an overly principled stance on a mark on a driver's license. So we didn't get driver's licenses in the state of California for an additional, it was at least 10 years. And then when we got them, ultimately, they had a mark on them. And so in that, in the 10 years in between, there was a lot of suffering. A lot of people, you know, had their cars taken away and impounded. There was, it just, so that is the cost of, you know, 
being willing to die on your sword. I mean, you fight the fight, live to the next day. And then we, you know, keep building power to fight, um, you know, for the next thing so that we have a driver's license that is the same for everybody. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think also draws out that very powerful story draws out the Melian leaders are the ones that sit at the table with the Athenians, but they never consult their own people. And so that's part of it's also in that story is the activists claim to represent those they're acting on behalf of, but are they actually representing? I, I think the Melian children, people back in the workshops, probably would have said, let's just pay the tribute and live another day. But mm-hmm. those who represented them didn't consult them. And the, the, I can remember at one point, the Athenians said, but go and consult your people, and they don't. And then slaughter is is the kind of consequence. And I think that is also those who claim to represent actually often not really in conversation and not really deliberating with consulting um, in relationship with even those who they're, they're claiming to represent. I think it's a, another feature of the story which can be drawn out very, very no, powerfully. Absolutely. No, the Malians were oligarchs. I mean, they were, they were a colony of Sparta and Sparta was an oligarchy and uh, the Athenians, um, you know, they, they were, they, developed democracy they were they believed in the demos and in and in uh bringing things before the people so absolutely yeah yeah so what are some of the most kind of interesting or slightly left field responses to the the, to the dialogue you've had in training well (laughs) so you know as i said the first part of the training is an is an exercise and we kind of throw people into it um and the, the purpose is for them to have an experience with each other and they bring to it what they bring to it. So as a trainer, I do very little in the first half of the training. I tell them, you know, I kind of set some parameters and, and assign them roles. You're Athenians, you're Malians. And then I say, go. And then they enact whatever they feel they want to enact. And then we, you know, uh, evaluate that, teach off of it, deliberate at the end, and then we go through the text. So I had this group of white, mostly middle upper class women who, after we had gone through this, came back and uh, the next day and were very upset with me. And they said, um, we think that this entire training is operating out of a white supremacist patriarchal structure. And so the very fundamental underlying, you know, assumptions that you have put upon us are, are from the patriarchy. And uh, I said, oh, okay. Well, you're saying that I, <laughs> a woman of color, uh, who I had been the only trainer in that room. I I brought the white supremacist patriarchy into this room. That's what you're, you're telling me. I am being patriarchal. I am being a white supremacist because I am the trainer. And so that's what you're saying to me. And they thought, yes. I said, look, I set up some chairs and I said, go. And you all brought what you brought from whatever it is out in the world that you learned. So, we may very well be operating out of patriarchal white supremacist assumptions, but that came from the world 
it came from what you've learned. It did not come from me. Don't put that on me. Right, and nice. so, I mean, you know, it, so we wrestled with that, but I, you know, I just, that was a, uh, that was one of my favorite <laughs> <laughs> accusations was that I had brought the patriarchy. Um, right. But, you know, that's part of, part of the learning is, you know, we have scripts in our heads right. that we live out and Sometimes it's okay to live them out, but if we are unaware that we operate with a script, then that's problematic because we we consent to assumed power. We think folks have more power than they do, and we are all guilty of that. Um, we don't think we can disrupt things. We don't think we have the right. Um, we have a lot more power than we think that we do if we are organized. And so that is also part of what the dialogue disrupts is, you know, you got to get out of your own script. But that's also, I mean, I think that's also the, the, the confrontation and the contestation. That's also part of the issue is getting, getting kind of comfortable in a, and being able to contest and confront constructively rather than that being a total end to the relationship, that that's part of how we deal with power is being able to confront deal with tension while at the same time holding relationship and that's that's part of what the athenians and melian dialogue kind of represents a failure of the melians can't hold tension with the athenians and, uh, and make an ask and confront them they kind of speechify and then it you know all, coll all collapses eventually but that but i think that's an interesting dynamic is also that as much as the being comfortable with power, there's this part of being comfortable with power is, is dealing with tension, dealing with contestation, dealing with confrontation in constructive ways, rather than always viewing that as a failure of a relationship, viewing that as part of sustaining meaningful relationship with people with power. In public life, you have to be able to fight and you have to be able to fight with your allies. Some of the most difficult fights are the internal ones. I mean, that's why we, when we build organizations, we spend two, three years building the organization because people have to develop some trust and learn how to have fights with each other about things like money and, you know, how we conduct ourselves. If we can't fight with each other effectively, we will never be able to effectively then turn around and deal with a person in power because we, we're not on the, you know, we're not on the same side. So I think we can find within our own traditions moments when we've done it right, when we've done it well, and we need to lean on those more um, because we're not doing it well right now. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, Anna, so much. This has been a great conversation and really, really, really appreciate you kind of taking the time to open, open up the Athenian Melian dialogue for us. And, and hopefully um, we will all be better equipped to be Athenians rather than Melians after listening to this. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Listen, Organize, Act podcast, in which I discuss Thucydides' Athenian Melian Dialogue and what it teaches about the nature of politics. This podcast is sponsored by the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University. As with other episodes, you can download readings directly relevant to the episode from the Allman Center website. That's 
www.ormancenter.com backslash listen-organize-act-podcast. For now, let me say goodbye, and I hope you join me next time for a discussion of the Dean of Community Organizing, Saul Alinsky, and his two hugely influential books, Reveille for Radicals and Rules for Radicals. (laughs) 